This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, we're wrapping up the current story of Theseus. We're finally getting to Theseus confronting the Minotaur, and you'll see how bad sibling rivalries can get, especially if your half-brother is a Minotaur, and why blackmailing someone into marrying you might lead to a bit of a strained relationship. Then, on the Creature of the Week, you'll see why you shouldn't kill ants, especially if they're doing a merry little jig for you. This is the Myths and Legends podcast, episode 17C, I Volunteer as Tribute. This is a podcast where I tell stories that have shaped cultures throughout history. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you probably haven't heard, but really should. This is the third episode in the story of Theseus from Greek mythology, and if this is your first time hearing the podcast, it would probably be good to go back to 17a to start the story. Previously on the podcast, we met King Aegeus of Athens. He was partially responsible for the death of Androgeus, the son of King Minos of Crete. The two kingdoms went to war, and Athens lost, and Athens was forced to send 14 young people every nine years to be food for the Minotaur. The Minotaur was Minos's monstrous stepson, who he was able to imprison in the labyrinth. Minos would send the Athenians into the labyrinth, and the Minotaur hunted them down, one by one. King Aegeus of Athens also visited a town about 20 years ago, and fathered a son named Theseus, but didn't know about the young man's existence. He left some items for his son if he ever came to Athens and claimed his birthright, and he did. The only problem? King Aegeus thought Theseus was an assassin when the young man finally arrived at Athens. Aegeus handed him a poisoned drink at the prompting of his scheming wife, Medea. He finally recognized the items he left for his son, as his son was raising the cup to his mouth. At the banquet, King Aegeus pushed the man he was talking to out of the way, and didn't even see his guest flail backwards, wine ending up all over his clothes. He bounded across the room towards Theseus, and the cup was as close as it could have gotten without touching his lips before Aegeus was able to swat it out of the young man's hands. Theseus stood there, hand in midair as if he was holding the cup, mouth agape, and eyes wide. What was going on? Aegeus pulled the young man close and called him son. Aegeus turned around and shot a hateful glance at Medea, who read it and all of its implications. Medea huffed and disappeared down a passage. Remember how I said in 17a that she was a survivor? Well, she knew which way the wind was blowing and stole out of Athens with her children at that very hour. King Aegeus never saw her again, and she escaped to Asia. He didn't notice that day, though. He was elated that he had this son. And look at him. Aegeus learned all about him, from his childhood and treason with his mother to clearing the road of bandits on the way here. King Aegeus beamed with pride, and Theseus finally had a father. The world was a bit brighter for both of them, and they talked through the night and into the morning. Theseus wanted to know all about Athens, but that was a topic that his father was reluctant to talk about. It was from gossip on the street and all the people in his father's court wanting to curry favor that he learned of the war that they had lost decades ago and of the tribute to Crete. As an aside, I also have to correct something from 17a. I said that the tribute started nine years after the war, but the first group went with Minos at the war's end and the next nine years after that. So right now, they're about 18 years out from the war. A few days after he got to the city, 
Theseus decided to help out the city and sought out the bull. Yes, that bull. The bull that had fathered the Minotaur, been captured by Hercules, let go by Eurystheus, and had killed Androgeus and started this whole mess. Nearly 20 years on, it was still rampaging around the countryside. Theseus slipped out one morning and followed the rumors of the beast. Later that day, there were shouts from the walls. It seemed like the whole city of Athens was straining to see what it was. It was Theseus, dragging the unconscious great white bull by its horns into the city. There was feasting and celebrating. Aegeus finally had the thing. Many, many years too late, and presented it as a sacrifice to the gods. Even though the bull was finally dead, and the city was celebrating, Theseus could see that his father was anxious. As he spent more time with his father, he saw the man look fearfully towards the coast, and Theseus learned that the next tribute was due. The nobles hated King Aegeus for compelling their young men and women to draw lots to see who would go. Not only did they see him as weak, but as a hypocrite, because he would always withhold his own children from the drawing. Theseus learned of the drawing after the fact, from one of the angry nobles. He considered it for a moment, and then quietly volunteered to take the young man's place, the group of fourteen. The Cretans came, and unlike last time, they didn't need to march into the city and force the nobles out of their homes, bringing destruction with them. Fourteen people were standing up by the docks, already in chains. Well, thirteen, actually. Aegeus motioned to the guards to go find the young man who was supposed to be here, but looked back to see another one taking his place. The king cursed and rushed down. Aegeus ordered Theseus out of chains, but his son refused. The king pleaded with his son. He had just learned of him. Why was he doing this? It was basically like committing suicide. Didn't Theseus want to stay with his father in his kingdom? Theseus said of course he did, but he could see the city was one more wrong decision away from revolt. Then his father, and Theseus by association, would be exiled or worse. If he went and died or stayed, it would end the same way, and they would have no more time together anyway. If he was able to kill this beast, though, the tribute would end, and the people would be satisfied with the Aegeus as their king. Theseus said that he had to do this. Aegeus reluctantly agreed. But still, there had to be a better way than his own son going to his death. He made a deal with Aegeus. If Aegeus saw a ship approaching from Crete before the next tribute was due, with their trademark black sails, it meant that Theseus was dead. If it was a Cretan ship with white sails, then the young man had survived, and the Minotaur was dead. King Aegeus could see the group of soldiers was getting impatient, so he agreed. Tears welled up as he gave his son a hug. They only had known each other for days, but he loved the young man. Theseus had cleared the road from bandits and captured the horrible bull. Perhaps he could defeat the Cretan Minotaur. Regardless, though he was sad, I would imagine he was proud of the boy for making the difficult choice that he could not. Aegeus watched the black sails disappear over the horizon. He found a cliff overlooking the sea, and that's where he stood, always watching and hoping against all odds for his son's return. The 
The Athenian captives were not treated poorly on the ships, and before long they were in Crete. Minos came down to meet them at the docks, and was particularly happy when he heard the rumors from the guards that Theseus was the long-lost son of Aegeus, and heir. There could not be a more fitting revenge for the death of Androgeus. Ariadne, the princess, daughter of King Minos, and, I guess the half-sister to the Minotaur, accompanied her father to the docks. She immediately noticed the young man who didn't appear racked with fear, who stood tall before her father. He might be the one. We don't get too much insight onto this pivotal character's motivations, but I would imagine she hated the Minotaur and the cruel blood sport of feeding captives to it. It was a black mark, not only on Crete and her kingdom, but on her family itself. It was her half-brother, and her father, who not only put up with the thing, kept feeding it. I would imagine it disgusted her. She was stuck, though. The thing lived deep in the maze, and she wasn't strong enough to go in after it. And, as a quick note, that's not a dig against Ariadne. I know I wouldn't be brave enough to take down my Minotaur half-brother in the labyrinth, but luckily I don't need to. My Minotaur half-brother, Ron, is a good guy, and doesn't eat people. He's a vegetarian. Ariadne looked at this Theseus, though, and not only admired his bravery, but admired him. The Athenians, though they were prisoners, weren't treated like them for that night. They stayed in nice, though heavily guarded lodgings, and were allowed to walk around the complex. Tomorrow they would be cast into the darkness, but they could enjoy tonight. Standing on a terrace, looking over Crete, Theseus was in silence after everyone had gone to bed. Tomorrow he would face the thing that had taken the life of 28 of his countrymen, and he had no idea how to fight it. He put on a brave face, but inside he was unsure. He heard a whispering below him, and looked down into the bush. More whispering, but he didn't understand it. He saw the bush move, and bent down to brush the leaves aside, when a hand shot up and grabbed his wrist. He almost fell off the small terrace, but a woman's face emerged from the bushes. He helped her climb up. He had seen her looking at him down at the docks, and learned that she was the daughter of King Minos. She told him she wanted him to kill the Minotaur. That's the plan, Theseus said. At this point, it was either kill the Minotaur, be killed by the Minotaur, or die of starvation in the labyrinth. The problem was getting out. Ariadne said she had a solution to that. She just needed him to agree to one condition. She wanted to be Theseus's wife. Sure, and it... Wait, what? Yeah, she said. You need to marry me. Once I help you escape from the labyrinth, I'll be, best case scenario, disinherited. You're the heir to the throne of Athens. I'm going to keep my title of princess one way or another. Do we have a deal? Theseus said he couldn't really do that. He just got to Athens, and he couldn't pledge himself in marriage to the daughter of his family's greatest enemy. She said, Okay, well, good luck with the labyrinth. She heard stories of the whales coming through those caves, of those that were doomed to wander until they fell to the Minotaur or one another. She made to jump off the terrace, but Theseus caught her arm. He quickly weighed his odds. This was his best way of surviving. Okay, he told her, you'll be my wife. How do I get out of this place? She showed him a spool of thread and explained. Years ago, when the labyrinth was being built, the architect, named Daedalus, had taken a liking to her. She would come and watch the progress, 
playing with his much older son Icarus, and he treated her like the daughter he never had. Daedalus had an idea of what Minos had planned to do with the maze, that he planned not only to imprison the Minotaur, but to put people in and feed them to him. Daedalus devised a way out. He was able to invent a very special type of thread to wind through the whole place. It was strong enough to withstand being scraped on the rocks, and thin enough not to be detected. Daedalus made it for anyone who needed a way out, and entrusted it to young Ariadne on the last day of construction. As we know, he was taken by the guards, imprisoned, and literally flew from captivity after that, so Ariadne had kept it secret since. She explained that there was a notch just inside the door. If you hook the thread on that, and the other side to your belt, you would always know the way out. This was the only way for Theseus to survive the labyrinth, and she knew he could do it. He would just need to remember his promise. Theseus nodded. All right, Ariadne said. Let's go. Theseus paused. Wait, really? Yeah, she said. What, was Theseus going to go in with the group of Athenians tomorrow? Then how was he going to get out? Minos sealed the door behind the tributes. It had to be tonight. Anxiety began to well up in Theseus. It made sense, and the difference between tonight and tomorrow was nominal. But to go right now was... Wow, right now. Theseus took a deep breath. Okay, let's go. Ariadne knew secret ways out of the compound, and together they walked a short distance out of the city, to the stone structure that was the entrance to the labyrinth. It was left unguarded because, really, who was going to come and disturb it? It housed a horrible monster, and if you went in, you risked getting lost forever. There might be guards posted in the months following the tributes being put in there, but for most of the nine years between the tributes, this place remained desolate. Together, Theseus and Ariadne slid back the stone door, and in the torchlight they found the notch Daedalus had made all those years ago. Remember that this is nearly twenty years after the completion of the labyrinth, so Icarus is long dead, and Daedalus is in secret exile in Sicily. Anyway... Ariadne gives him his sword, and hooks the spool of line to Theseus's belt. He nods, and she leans in close, and kisses her new fiancé. He's still feeling ambivalent about the whole forced marriage to the daughter of his people's greatest enemy, so he gives her a forced smile, and enters the labyrinth. She watches the torchlight disappear in the darkness down the forking paths, and takes a seat at the entrance, waiting, and hoping he would emerge again. Hours later, we find Theseus yelling and clanging his sword on the side of the tunnels. He was getting hoarse, but he needed to find this thing before morning. The slight tug of the line to the entrance running from his belt was a nice reassurance, and he could see the despair someone would feel down here, especially in the darkness. It wasn't that things were noteworthy, it's that they were decidedly mundane. Each rough-hewn fork in the tunnels was exactly like the last rough-hewn fork you just took, and would be like the next one you saw. It will be easy to sink into despair down here in the darkness, with the Minotaur before you and the guards at the entrance behind you, if you could ever find the entrance again. Theseus confirmed, again, that the spool was firmly on his belt. Another hour passed, and in the darkness illuminated only by torchlight, Theseus realized just how tired he was. 
It had been a long day, and now it must be approaching morning. He stopped and took a long drink from his water skin. He had lost his voice, and he leaned against a wall to rest at one of the corners. Then, off in the darkness, he heard something. At first it was the hooves stomping. Then they got slowly closer, and he could hear something smelling and grazing the walls. It was here. Decius's heart began beating faster and faster, and his hand, already coated with tiny beads of sweat, went to his sword. This was it. How big could this thing be? He took three deep breaths, and then spun around the corner. Theseus turned the corner and saw it, filling the passageway. It had a body like Hercules, with a mad, hungry head of a wild bull. It had been smelling Theseus for hours, and saliva was dripping from its mouth in buckets in anticipation. When it saw him, it didn't wait, but broke off into a charge after Theseus. The Athenian instinctively ran in the other direction. This was much worse than he had anticipated. He was going to die down here, torn apart by this beast. What had he done? Worse, it was catching up. In a dead sprint, this thing was much faster than him. He saw a turn off the main passageway coming up, and in the last moment, he ducked into it. It kept going, unable to slow down, and Theseus felt something. In a split second, he found how he could get his chance. The thread was buzzing as it flew out of the spool on his waist. The Minotaur was caught in it and taking it with him. Theseus steeled himself and grabbed the thread with all of his strength. There was a sharp jerk which almost smashed Theseus against the adjoining wall, but then the line went slack. Theseus did not waste a moment. He ran up to find the massive beast dazed on the floor of the labyrinth, but slowly climbing to its feet. Theseus drew his sword, jumped on its back, and began slashing and stabbing. The Minotaur, having only really eaten unarmed opponents, bellowed in pain and fear. It didn't know what was going on, but it had to get away. It was eventually able to throw Theseus off its back, and it began to struggle to its feet. Theseus could see that the Minotaur had gone from a starving predator to a scared animal. It would run now, and disappear into the darkness. Theseus couldn't let that happen. He felt for the unspooled line, gripped it in both hands, and wrapped it several times around the thing's neck. It panicked and jerked at the line, drawing Theseus close. They were tangled together now. It backed up and was able to grab Theseus off his back. Though he couldn't get this little man off of him, he could shake him and bite him and slam him into things. Theseus sliced and stabbed at every opportunity and punched it in the nose with the other hand. Blood from the fight poured out from both and speckled the walls, and eventually the fight became less frenzied. The Minotaur's bites became slower, and Theseus began to have a hard time lifting his sword hand, and his strikes became weaker. Then, the Minotaur dropped, with Theseus underneath it. With his last bit of strength, Theseus lined up his sword so that, when the beast fell, it would go in the neck. He was successful, and he felt it sink into the Minotaur, but the frenzied animal, fighting to the last, was still snapping at Theseus. He could feel the breath on his neck and the motion of its teeth trying to clip Theseus's neck. With as much force as he could muster, Theseus pushed at the beast. Eventually, the sounds of its teeth snapping became farther and farther apart. Then, they stopped altogether. Theseus breathed a sigh of relief. He had done it. 
he had killed the Minotaur. I took some liberties in fleshing out the story. It's the climax of this particular narrative, as it brings together the story of Aegeus, Minos, Theseus, and Daedalus, all to one focus point. That being said, all the ancient versions of the story are ridiculously, frustratingly sparse in the details if you're trying to do a podcast on it. They say, essentially, with the help of Ariadne, Theseus went into the labyrinth, killed the Minotaur, and helped the Athenians safely escape Crete. Some sources say that he snuck his sword in. Other sources say that he got in a fistfight with the Minotaur and killed him that way. And still others say that he strangled the Minotaur. I tried to construct the fight such that all three worked, but that's what I had to go on. No story mentions Theseus using the threat in the fight, but I thought that seemed logical and it fit with the strangulation method of death. We don't have any details on how the Minotaur fought either. I like to think of him as a hungry predator who wanted to avoid the fight. When it finally felt the pain of someone fighting back, I imagine it would run because it had never felt that before. That's my justification for the fight that, while it doesn't contradict anything in any of the versions, definitely brings in some extraneous details to make it work as a narrative. And that's basically this whole podcast. Me bringing in small amounts of extraneous details to make things into a hopefully interesting story. But I had to do a lot of it here. Okay, back to the story. After a brief rest, Theseus pushed the Minotaur off of him and struggled to his feet. He decapitated the thing and took the head with him. And it was another few hours of limping, following the thread out of there. He walked down identical forking paths until he felt the cool air of the night flooding up ahead. Theseus unhooked the line from the stone and looked around the corner. He saw Ariadne, asleep, and hobbled over to her. Nudging her awake, her face lit up. He had done it. He had done it. He showed her the minotaur head and flung the bloody thing toward the open door of the labyrinth. The Cretans would know it was done. They had to get out of the city, though, and off the island. If Minos learned of the minotaur, he would kill Theseus and the other captives in retaliation. Ariadne smirked. She had thought of that, too. She prepared a ship, and when they got back to the compound, they didn't bother with secrecy. With his sword, Theseus just killed the guards and freed the Athenians. With the group, they made their way to port. Ariadne had arranged it so the guards in the area would be called away that night, so it was completely abandoned. She directed them to the ships, and Theseus stopped. Ariadne had gotten all their personal effects that had been taken off them when they arrived in Crete, and she had given Theseus back his bronze club. He took the club and limped to the other ships, smashing holes in their hulls just above the waterline. They would stay afloat now, but as soon as they were boarded to come after the fugitives, they would take on water and sink before they could get too far. Then, Ariadne, Theseus, and the thirteen other Athenian captives huddled onto the cramped ship and took off towards the sea in the night. It was only a few hours till dawn, and they didn't want to risk someone seeing them or the Cretans finding them on the sea. Given that none of them were really skilled sailors or had any idea how to navigate the sea, they had to stay within view of the coast. They found a small, rocky, deserted island just out to sea and put in there, hiding the ship in a small bay. Theseus and Ariadne were exhausted, having been up the night before, and none of the other Athenians had really gotten a great night's sleep, thinking that they would be sacrificed in the labyrinth the next day. No one had a problem falling asleep in the shade of the forest that morning. Theseus snapped awake that afternoon, 
and looked at Ariadne, still sleeping soundly next to him. It still hurt when he breathed, but it was getting better. He let her sleep a little longer and went to go prepare the ships for a journey back to Athens that night. When he got out of view of Ariadne, he had an idea. He never wanted to marry Ariadne. She had forced him into it. What other choice did he have back then, as a prisoner about to be fed to the beast? He did have a choice now. He hobbled as fast as he could to the other Athenians, and, with a whisper, awoke them. Quietly, they all boarded the ship. He pushed off in the afternoon sun, with Ariadne still sleeping in the forest. Ariadne slowly opened her eyes. It was chilly and dark. How late had they slept? She rolled over, reaching for her new fiancé, and felt only the cold ground. She brought herself to her feet. A foreboding crept over her. She hoped the Athenians were just getting the ship ready, but she knew before she saw the coast. They were gone. She wrapped her arms around her to warm herself and looked out across the dark sea. She betrayed her city and family for him, and he had left her without a thought here on this island. If she could ever make it off, she could never return to her homeland. They would be hunting her forever. Tears streamed down her face as she realized just how utterly alone she was. Some stories say that the god Dionysus saw the girl weeping on the beach and took pity on her. He went to her, took her as his wife, and she bore several of his children in a faraway place. Other stories are a bit more realistic. When she realized that Theseus had left her, she could never go back. She searched for a way off the island. When she found that it was too far to swim, and that there was no food or fresh water, she fashioned a cord and hanged herself from a tree. For Theseus and the other Athenians, it was nearly done as they approached the cliffs near Athens. Theseus felt a bit guilty that he had abandoned the girl. He told himself that he would return to her when he wasn't fleeing for his life. Now, though, he was just happy to be home. It was his kingdom, with his father who he had just barely gotten to know before his duty to his newfound people sent him off to Crete. Now, though, he would have all the time in the world to get to know his father. He had done it. His father's kingdom, his kingdom, was safe. He had plans for it, too. Once the throne came to him, he would give the city back to the people. He would wait a while, of course, until his father had died of natural causes, but he knew this was a good idea. That way the whole city wouldn't be caught up in dynastic disputes or tied to the poor decisions of one king. That was not for years, though. Now, he was just happy to get back to, and get to know, his father. He looked up to the sun coming over the cliff and could see a man there, sitting on a seat overlooking the water. It was his father. He waved and shouted for joy, but he didn't think the old man could see or hear him that well. He saw the figure stand up slowly and put his hands to his mouth and then bury his face in his hands. What? Why wasn't the king rejoicing? Theseus became even more confused when he saw the body of the man convulsing with deep sobs. Then, the king walked closer to the edge, and Theseus felt a chill run up his back. Something was wrong. He turned to look at the other Athenians, but they were confused too. Then, his eyes caught something, and his stomach dropped like a stone. 
the sails. Theseus had forgotten to change them to white, as he said he would. His father thought he was dead. Up on the cliff, Aegeus could see the Cretan ship coming into port to tell him of his dead son. The only thing that had kept his people from rising up against him was the possibility of the end of the tribute. He had now lost his kingdom, his honor, and now even his son and only heir. He walked closer to the edge. He could hear shouts of joy from the Cretan vessel. His enemies had taken everything from him. They wouldn't have the joy of seeing him driven into exile or usurped by a family member. Through tears of mourning the son he had too little time with, he found the edge of the cliff and stepped off. Some of the Athenians screamed, but Theseus just stood in silence as he watched his father drop to the water below, arms outstretched and robe fluttering in the wind. He landed with a sickening crack, and Theseus didn't hesitate, but dove in and swam to him. I'm not sure if Theseus ever heard the prophecy of the Delphic Oracle, but it was proven true that day. With the help of King Pythus, on the day he was conceived, King Aegeus loosened his wineskin before he reached the height of Athens, and here, 20 years later, he died of grief. Unlike Icarus years earlier, Aegeus did not die on impact. He chose to drown himself because of the sadness of losing his son. He died mere moments before his son finally reached him. After he died, Theseus renamed the sea in his honor, and, according to the Athenians, that's how the Aegean Sea, still called that to this day, got its name. Crete stopped the practice of the tribute after that, and I like to think Minos blamed Daedalus, that old artificer, for leaking the secrets to Labyrinth, and that's why he came after the man with such ruthlessness. The still bruised and battered Theseus became king of Athens that day when he returned, though I can't imagine it was without a heavy heart. He risked his life to kill the beast so that he and his father could have more time together. And now he had everything but. From the seat of power, he remembered his plans to give the city back to the people. All of the bad things that happened over the past few decades have been a result of kings either worrying about maintaining their current power or making sure they would be able to hand off their power to someone in the future. Theseus decided he wouldn't have any more of that. Back then, Athens was just a city. He was king in Athens, but remember that even just outside the city, on the road there, he ran into another king. Athens was surrounded by disparate tribes and peoples, and the king had to worry about threats from within, like his numerous family members, or threats from without, like rival kings and tribes chipping away at his power. It took a while, but he went to each of these tribes individually, voicing his intent to be just a first citizen of sorts, and not the king. They agreed and Athens became a commonwealth, a democracy where groups of the population would rule, ideally, at the behest of the people. Theseus was still sort of a commander-in-chief and would wield emergency power in times of war or crisis, but there wouldn't be any more of the lines of kings ruling over the people in Athens. This was of twofold benefit to Theseus. It made Athens so large, with the incorporation of the surrounding tribes and peoples, that any other city-states would think twice about going to war with it and subjecting it to particularly harsh tributes. Secondly, with the day-to-day -day management of government handled, ostensibly by the people, it freed Theseus up. Sure, he could have sat there and remained king, but what did that get him, really? Constant anxiety about usurpers and fear that he would never father a son? No, he didn't need that. He had made himself more powerful 
and will be remembered as a hero. And, for all intents and purposes, he was still quite powerful in his new role as first citizen. He was beloved by his people, too, for making them safe and for transforming their city. Besides, there was a wide world out there. A world he wanted nothing more than to explore, and, like his hero Hercules, he wanted to make it better for his people. I'm going to stop right there with Theseus. Of course, there are many more stories dealing with him, including ones that overlapped with Hercules, and then there'll be the story of Jason and the Argonauts. Next week, it's a Christmas episode, and we'll talk about the incredibly violent and bizarre legends surrounding St. Nicholas, and talk about his rusty chain-wielding, cloven-footed colleague, Krampus, who, with a movie out right now named after him, has had quite a big year. I want to say thank you to Be One and Only One, Old Airplanes, Lola Story, Leo J34, K Rivers, Papa G, Smidas, PC Palmer Amateurists, C1M2S5, Pierre JBB, Fanta the Factory Cat, and Sam Morgan RN for the reviews on iTunes. You all are fantastic, and I'm really grateful. If you'd like to leave a review and help people find the show, iTunes is the best place for now. And you can find the show on there at itunes.mythpodcast.com. Also, if you'd like to help support the show, get an extra monthly episode, extra episodes delving into the culture and history behind the stories on the show, and ebook source packs, there's a membership thing going on on the website. For $5, less than the price of 13 Breathe Right strips, that's less than a fortnight's worth, you can become a member. The Fairy Tale Friday show this month is about a Celtic king's beard blanket, so it'll be pretty good. If you're interested, you can check out support.mythpodcast.com. And as always, thank you just for listening. I really appreciate it. The creature, or creatures this week, are the Murians of Cornish folklore. They are very tiny supernatural creatures, the size of ants. But they are apparently very beautiful, if you can see them. The little people were once much larger creatures, at least the size of a large human. They somehow offended God, but they were too good to send directly to hell, but too bad for heaven. They were cursed to stay on the earth. Oh, and because they were supernatural, they apparently had the power to shapeshift. Every time they shapeshifted, though, which I'm not sure if that's the correct verb, they became gradually, almost imperceptibly smaller. Over centuries, they shrunk and shrunk because I guess you can't ask creatures not to shapeshift. Now, the largest Murians, with the most self-control are the size of ants. The smaller ones are invisible. They are nice, though, and I suppose their clothes shrink with them, because the men wear tiny black hats, green trousers, and blue jackets. The women wear lace and silver bells. Remember, they weren't bad enough for hell, and they're apparently pretty nice. They'll go into the houses of the poor and the sick to dance and entertain people. If there are listeners from Cornwall, please tell me if this is actually a thing. But in a couple places I found that, because of the belief in these people, it's considered imprudent to kill ants in Cornwall. I honestly don't know what the takeaway message is here. I guess if you're human, don't kill ants if they're little people doing a jig for you. And if you're a Murian, maybe lay off the shape-shifting every now and then, to, you know, avoid shrinking out of existence. That's the show this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Links to the other music I used are in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.